I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, thank you so much for joining me again here on the Education on Fire podcast. Great to be back with you. I hope you had a chance to look at the Executive Function Online Summit that I spoke about in recent episodes. It's presented by Seth Perler, who's a previous guest on the show, and you can find out all the information about this amazing three-day event, the 11th to the 13th of August, at educationonfire.com forward slash TFOS. That's T-E-F-O-S. So if you have a child at home in your class that you're working with that really struggles with anything related to executive function, I really do recommend that you go and check this out. It's an absolutely free event, as I said, the 11th to the 13th of August. That's educationonfire.com forward slash TFOS. Now today I'm excited to welcome Lynn McLaughlin and she served in many roles as an educator, superintendent, principal, vice principal, teacher and education consultant. In addition to her business, Lynn now teaches future education assistants at her local college. As a best-selling and award-winning author, Lynn has now teamed up with her niece, Amber Raymond, to co-author a children's book series entitled The Power of Thought. Both are passionate about being proactive when it comes to children's mental health. When children learn and manage their emotions at a young age, they learn to problem-solve and find positive solutions to everyday situations. Lynn is also the host of the podcast, Taking the Helm. To find out more about Lynn and everything that we spoke about, including her books, please go to lynnmclaughlin.com. Hi, Lynn. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. I think all I'm going to say to begin with for a change is education. That's where we're starting. And we're going to probably just fill the void from there for the next, well, we could probably do a couple of weeks, but we're going to try and keep it into, the, into, into an hour's time frame. So yeah, thanks so much for being here. My honor and my pleasure, Mark. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with kind of your experience in terms of what you think education is and you can bring that in from being a superintendent the principal the teacher the parents you know what what is it sort of education is if you had to sort of put it into a nutshell to begin with uh, what is what is education or what would i like to see education be <laughs> what is education unfortunately i'll start by saying it's very politically motivated and politically driven and if we could push that aside uh and you know in canada every time we have a change in, in government there's a new minister of education there are new priority you know it's just this constant four or eight year flip which you know puts us in tor- turmoil all of the time but I mean, education, I totally believe in total inclusiveness and education for all. The public education system is something I fully, fully, fully support. Um, what's, what's, you know, the, the, you know, if you've had, if you're from a special education background, essential for some good for all, we do things that work for all kids thinking ahead of time that everyone in our class is different and needs something different. If we front load it thinking that way, then we're going to meet the needs of many other people. But um, there's a lot. There's a lot of expectations in, and when I say educators, Mark, I talk, I'm talking about anybody who's working in a school, teachers, support staff, custodians, secretaries, anybody who's influencing those kids that are in the building for that period of time. And 
There's so many responsibilities now on us. Um, in Ontario, they're now talking about schools taking responsibility for breakfast programs. Well, that's already happening in, you know, in a way in every community by communities coming together with churches or service groups. And to now say that educators could potentially be responsible for providing a breakfast to every single student, <laughs> you know, I, I think there has to be a line to say, what are we able to do? What are we able to support? And absolutely, let's get our kids fed. No question about it. But we could do that in other ways by putting that additional responsibility onto us. There's a lot going on in classrooms today. It, you know, it was challenging before COVID. After COVID, the, these young people, you, you just think about a six-year-old for who for three years was in their house right? Three years was literally in their house, surrounded by this comfort zone that we created. And now we're saying to everybody, hey, come on back in. Here's your new comfort zone. Come on out into the public. So the mental health needs of our students and our staff right now are really, really critical. And I think we've totally missed the ball. Uh, we've missed the ball on that in Ontario. It's not, I'm not suggesting there aren't things happening to support staff and students, but we are being responsive instead of putting place, things in place to be proactive from the beginning. Um, so, you know, when you ask him, what is education? It, it really is about, uh, our role absolutely is about taking every single student to their highest, highest level of potential, whatever that is. If it's in the arts, if it's in music, like, like you're a musician and you understand that if it's in athletics, if it's academic, if it's in the trades, if it's whatever, but we have to help them find what that niche is and get them there. Um, and, and, and most importantly, put their well-being as the most important thing because when we're well, we're going to be able to meet our fullest potential. We're going to be able to meet those challenges every single day. So I think I've gone on kind of a little, <laughs> I don't know, 20 different tent tentacles there, but uh, I, yeah. I think that's really true because I think if you were speaking to a politician, that wouldn't be the answer. It would be, we need a grade score of this and we need to make sure that year on year, our, you know, our points and our grade averages getting higher and we're making the tests harder and uh, and all, all of all of that kind of stuff. Um, none of it's got to do with the child. And, and, you know, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. And like you said, you know, having strong, healthy, resilient children who understand what life is and more importantly, what the love of learning is and how you kind of go about doing that. And it, that shouldn't be despite the education system. It should be because of it. And that's kind of probably the mm -hmm. crux of, of where we sort of get going, really. Agreed, 100%. So when you talk about well-being and mental health from, from both you know the pupil and, and the, um, the staff point of view, where does that come from in your eyes is it having a work-life harmony or balance is it about having structures in place that give you the skills you need is it purely about the fact we know this wow, is going to be hard so here are some understandings and tools to kind of help you yeah that's a really complex question and i'm here now i mean i retired oh my gosh it'll be five years ago in september i teach at post-secondary now but i've seen kids struggling we have day treatment centers for five-year-olds Okay, let's just start with that. If we could focus on the kids first and then the staff. We have day treatment centers for the five-year-olds. We have post-secondary students who are requiring levels of support that they've, you know, never, we've never needed to provide in the past because they're really, really struggling. So what are, what are we missing? When one in four of us are, are be, going to be diagnosed with a mental illness in our lifetime, and that means diagnosed, how many of us are not going to be diagnosed? It's clear we are not doing something right. And I don't want to muddy this with, you know, neurological, genetic, those kinds of factors when we talk about a mental illness. But being proactive, 
I, I have no doubt that that is going to change the trajectory and lower the levels of anxiety, lower the levels of depression. And what's happening when those kids are coming into school now without the ability to control those emotions, to have self-regulation. And of course they don't right away. It's a develop, it's all the developmental stages. That puts a lot more stress on educators because now you've got kids blowing up. You've got kids who are not focused. You are kids who are not learning. The gap in, 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 you know, meeting the curriculum requirements is increasing. I'm not going to be able to cover the curriculum this year. And all of the pressures that come around us as teachers to say, we got to do this. When what's missing is getting those kids in a place where they can learn. Right? So, I think it's twofold. If we got the, we've got to do our best to get the kids in a place where they can learn with with all of those things that we now know that maybe we didn't know 15 years ago about mindfulness and emotional. I don't I don't like the word emotional intelligence so much. I think it's overwhelmed overused. But there's a lot of tentacles at that 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 can help kids be in a, in a better place. And I've been doing that for two years now. And then when we talk about staff, my if if you ask me if I had a wand, what what would I wish for? If every single child care center, if every single classroom practiced something, call it mindfulness, call it whatever you want to do, some type of a mindfulness activity every single day, it's not only going to affect those little people in child care, staff, our staff have to be trained in it, right? So if you think of this as what does implementation look like, like when a superintendent, principal, whatever, if you're going to put a plan in place, what does the implementation look like? For educators, it has to be given them the tools to give these to children. Well, if I'm going to learn uh, deep breathing and learning how to make choices and all, you know uh, all kinds of other things that are possible today, then that's going to affect me in a positive way too. Because now I'm in a calmer place. I'm in a, a more present place to help those kids and to guide those kids in a way that's positive for both of us. And then imagine the synergy is what I say, Mark, because that now goes into the homes. That now, in whatever way that looks like, you know, we've got parents, right? Let's talk about self-compassion who are working three jobs right now, who aren't making ends meet. The costs have risen, the the pays are going down, you know, you know all of those kinds of things. So, I, you know, putting the pressure on parents to be able to do this is, it's it can't happen alone in that segment. This is something where we all need to come together. I think it should be a mandatory component in the curriculum. And so I don't know what the, my, my son is teaching in Australia right now. It's very interesting talking to him about what the curriculum looks like. Um, uh, there are countries that have national strategies in place. That's a totally different thing. But if it, like in Ontario, we have sex ed education embedded in our curriculum. We have a mandatory daily physical activity of 20 minutes. We don't have anything that talks about emotional well-being. Um, we have, we now have in some boards program consultants that are going into schools by choice and modeling mindfulness, mindfulness activities with kids. I say mindfulness, but you know, I know different traditions think about different things, but, and that's by choice though. So I can see it starting. I can see it starting, but here, unless it's ordered or part of the curriculum or made mandatory, it's not going to happen in every classroom in every school. That's my magic wand. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I always think about sort of the sports analogy. You know, they bring in a new coach. They they want the team to do really well. And then you've got this lag because they have to put an environment into place, a system in place. The the staff come and they change and then they, they create an environment over two, three, four, five years, which creates this winning team. And it doesn't happen overnight. You have to kind of have all these things in place. And like you said, from a political standpoint, you haven't got that amount of time. Even if they, even if they wanted to do that, 
unless it's cross-party, unless you take it out of the political realm, for the well-being of everybody. And the thing that always really sort of winds me up is the fact that the data's there to say that if we did this, then there'd be less money spent on the health service and various other things that are going on because, you know, <laughs> it would make a massive difference to our society. But you can't measure it in five years, and so therefore it's not gonna it's not gonna really make that much of a difference. So we can't have that lag. And so the problem is, is like I say, unless someone comes and says this is now going to be twenty, like I say, twenty minutes every day for everybody, then that would make a difference. But they're not going to do that because they're not prepared to take out twenty minutes of maths or something else, which is on the curriculum, which is supposedly making a difference, despite all the data. So I think when you've got people coming in making a difference and understanding it. When it gets layered on top, of course, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we're trying to find this extra time. We're trying to do this extra work on top of what's already a massive time load that you've got for everything else going on. And so you can start to see why it starts to creak even more and more because you're trying to do your best to improve things. But actually, you're making it harder in some respects if we need to take it as a whole. So it's why I kind of love these conversations so much is because while... All that being said, let's have the magic wand and make it happen. That's not going to happen tomorrow, which is shocking, but <laughs> it could happen, but it's unlikely to. But what we can do is hopefully we can hear the fact that someone is doing it and also how they're being able to do it as well, which is why I love, because you've got this experience across many different aspects of all of those things and in terms of training and building staff and also kind of being able to implement new things how do you go about kind of sharing that message to make an impact, but also bringing people on board so that sort of that sort of area of, of grassroots, as it were, can kind of, of, of spark enough interest and enough forward momentum that it's going to make a difference going forward, not just for the people in the immediacy that you'll been able to communicate with, but sort of further afield and sort of across your country and, and mine and beyond. Thank you for asking me that question. I'm just, I just, I want to answer. <laughs> One of the most powerful, powerful, I'll say processes I used when I was a superintendent of education was called leading from the middle. And I don't know if you might recognize the name, Andy Hargraves. He's, he's a Brit and uh, Dennis Sheary. They were working at a Boston college and 10 school boards in Ontario jumped on this project called leading from the middle. Now our premise wasn't emotional well-being at the time. It was our board. We chose we were seeing that our kids with learning disabilities were really struggling. And of course, that was through provincial assessments, but it was very clear and through teachers, et cetera, et cetera. So we pulled a committee together leading from the middle. And if you pull people in from the beginning who, abs who, who are sitting around the table and part of the problem solving and part of the solution, when you get to that implementation plan, everybody is on board because some things work, some things don't. So around that table, for example, we now have a reading intervention program research-based out of sick kids in Toronto in every single elementary school in the Greater Essex County District School Board in Ontario, down in Windsor, Essex, Ontario. And that happened because of this committee. We now have a reading intervention digital program. Actually, it's more of a reading response program. It's more for kids who are struggling in every primary classroom in the Greater Essex County District School Board. And it all happened because of this committee. Who was on it? Classroom teachers, special education teachers, the teachers union representative, the educational support uh, union representative, psychologists, social workers, principals, uh, um, uh, Learning Disabilities Association of Windsor-Essex had a representative at the table. Everybody around that table and we pulled out the data, the people 
We did a survey. We went out and talked to kids in schools. We went out and talked to teachers. We looked at all of the information and said, clearly there's a problem. We were able to identify the problem. Now, what are we going to do about it? And so if you don't have, for example, your union representatives there making a decision, in the end, it's what we call learning support teachers in our elementary schools that are implementing this reading intervention program for kids with LD. That union could have very much blocked us from moving forward because they, you know, it's going to take time away from the learning support teacher, those kinds of things. But because they were sitting around the table and part of the problem solving, it could see the end result because fewer and fewer and fewer kids need additional resources. Once they've been in this program, they are learning when they're older, they're learning how to drive. They weren't, they weren't going to be able to read at a grade six level before. It is research-based specifically for kids for LD. And primary teachers are not trained in how to teach kids with LD how to read. It's, it's a specialty, right? It's a specialty. So, uh, And then we started, so we came up with our solution and we piloted it. So when we talk about what's happening with emotional well-being and program consultants that are going around and doing mindfulness by request, what if... What if 15 school boards where you live, Mark, what if 15 school boards where I live said, or not school boards, schools, <laughs> uh, no school boards, let's talk about school boards, chose 15 schools within their boards and said, we're going to do this. For, and then and then you do a pre-measurement, you do a during measurement, you do a post-measurement, and you gather the information. And those tools are out there to do the measurements. There's no question about it. Observation and interviews is one of them, and I know that's anecdotal, but when you start to gauge the student's achievement, you're right, it's not going to happen after one year. You put that pilot program in place in, 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 in 15 schools for one year, the next year you add 15, the next year you add 15, then you gather, gather your, your data. There is no question in my mind you're going to see a change in violence in the violence from kids, outbursts from kids, suspensions, exclusions, expulsions, all of those things. Because you've proven that it works for the people who say, so the teachers who are, you know, I don't have 20 more minutes to give. Once they see this happening and they're listening to their colleagues and they're seeing the difference in, 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 a, in a learning environment that becomes productive and wonderful and healthy, it will change. It can change and we can make it happen. And then like you say, that really snowballs in, doesn't it? Because then you can turn around and say, this has happened in these 15 schools and this these 15 schools and over these number of years, let's try it somewhere else. And then hopefully, as, as we know, with a lot of these things, it then becomes a political decision because someone goes, this is a great idea. This was my idea. <laughs> then we can put it into place, which may be a little bit further down the road, but you kind of need to make that happen first. And, um, and I'm curious in that particular situation, how is it that you managed to galvanize so many different groups of people to be able to get on board to begin with? Uh, well, we'll talk about the teachers, for example, overwhelmed. Our learning support teachers were absolutely overwhelmed with the needs that were coming forward and they owned a lot of the responsibility. We had more and more students. We, we have a partially self-contained program where 10 students will go into a classroom for half the day for learning, um, for only for English and math. Um, our premise was a short period of time, close that gap and move them on. But the numbers were growing exponentially. So it becomes a question of well, what are we missing? What early intervention do we need to do to give those kids the learning tools, if you can't read, right, then that's going to affect all, everything you're doing and across your whole life, not just in school and academics, right? So then it was a question we have to do something about. Our teachers were frustrated. You know, a grade three teacher who's got a student in their class uh, and you know they have a learning disability and can't read, and then we're putting in 
you know, speech to text and text to speech and all these different accommodations. It just became so much for people that they wanted to be part of the solution. And when we came up with the solution, our, our teachers union agreed with us that we were going to do this and implement, we uh, teachers became responsible for doing their own individual education plans, which is also another part of this because, you know, in the Ed Act, they are responsible for the achievement of their kids and measuring progress. But we did a three year training program in combination, in partnership with the teachers union, right? And some people will say, oh, they're combative. I don't, you know, no, no. If you take a different mindset and you get them around the table and say, I need you to be part of this solution. And yeah, it's not easy. Well, this isn't going to work because of this. People throw things. And then you 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 go through and you research it. You're right through this. This is what the research says. Okay, put this aside. We're going to move on to something else. And it takes time. That first committee was one year in length before we came up a, with an implementation plan. But we were ready to go after that. Everybody was on board. Yeah, and I guess it sounds to me as if it's very much like everyone's literally got to the end of their tether. We're looking for the solution and everyone's looking for the solution. But I guess the key thing is what you're able to do is you're able to articulate what that might be. And that makes a great gift to be able to bring people together and say, this this isn't necessarily how it's going to be, but we know how we're going to try and get there. Like you say, a year down the line, lots of research and lots of doing it. But I guess the time is important because what it does is it galvanizes the system. System is not the right word, but it, it galvanizes the environment for people to start to kind of think, it doesn't matter what happens now, because if this doesn't work, this will work, or we'll try this, or we'll try that. But we're all speaking off the same hymn sheet, as it were. Yeah, and, uh, you know, after the one year of pie, the, that committee's not done after the one year when they come in the plan, right? It's always what's working, what's not working, how to revisit, what do we revise, right? We found that the learning, the program we put in specifically, at first we were trying in, in those classes I was just describing with 10 students, but it doesn't. we found it doesn't work with multiple exceptionalities. It's only specific for kids with LD. So how do we make that happen in the school day? My goodness, they're out of the class. What happens to a grade two student who's not in their classroom for half of their language arts period every single day for a year? Big problems to solve, but we did. What does that look like on the report card? Because the bottom line is those kids were coming back to classes and they, and they were starting to be able to read and not have to having to use, you know, other devices or, and, and when they can start to read, what happens? Self-confidence builds, risk-taking starts again, and, and, and it's a celebration. So yeah, it really did take off. And so I've been retired, as I said, for five years. It's still in every single classroom. I talk to people every single day and just saying, thank you for making this happen. I was a little piece of it. Uh, the people who led the way were Andy and Dennis, you know, who had the vision of leading from the middle. And I think the other thing for me is the, you kind of want to make it bigger than it is sometimes, because what we're talking about is personalized learning. And the, the reason people say this is impossible is because we've got 30 or 40 in a class and therefore it's not. But like you say, only because of our preconceived ideas, it's the same as the testing situation. It has to look like this because this is the result we're after. So as soon as it becomes, well, this we've got to the stage now that this is not working for this person to the fact it's detrimental to them in a really big way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we talk about mental health, you know, people who've got serious mental health issues. At that point, the world becomes brilliant because you get, hopefully, I mean, I know there's a big waiting list and all that kind of thing, but there's people out there that can really help you. Um, interestingly, at that point, they give you lots of things related to the arts and they give you an environment that's supportive for you and they take all the pressures away and they take time away and you can do things in a different way, which, of mm -hmm. course, if you'd done that to begin with, we probably wouldn't necessarily be in that same situation. Again, that's all about the, it's all about the, the time and, and seeing that, that bigger thing. But I think, like you say, 
enough people who are able to see all of that and then put that in place before. But it's all about personalised learning. What do you need at this moment? And I think that's what I really liked about giving, like you said, the skills to the staff and the pupils there because you can create your own personalised learning there. So it's like we might be doing mindfulness for 20 minutes here, but I know that, well, you probably don't know, but maybe at five o'clock this evening, I'm going to have a situation where I know something's happening and I need to take control of my personal circumstances yes. and my learning. And that might be not doing my homework because I need to be doing some breathing. Or it might be I've got the opportunity to do something here which is exciting and I can find a way of making that happen. And giving yourself that opportunity to kind of take that step forward, support yourself if you're struggling, be able to step into something which is going to be very positive for you but on your terms with the people around you. And then that becomes, the whole thing becomes very exciting, whatever sort of side of the track you're on there. It's, it's your, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, rather than being responsive, right? When the kids struggle, then we give them these supports, then we respond. And I had the experience with my own daughter, right? Um, she was ill as a child, long story short, but she she was an anxious child and got to the point where anxiety was a really big part of her life. And she had to take control. She had to know what her triggers were. If something's about to come up, if you're, for example, um, anxious speaking in front of people or anxious going into a crowded room, if you know that about yourself, then you can say, I'm always going to be sitting in the chair in the corner facing everyone. And you can lower your anxiety because you have that plan ahead of time. But why do we wait until people are struggling to say, hey, let's do this. What you just described is taking the practices and applying them to your whole life. So we don't just do um, maybe a yoga activity. Maybe it's uh, visualization. Oh my gosh, there's so many visualizations. We're helping kids use their imaginations to calm themselves and us too, right? If we can take that and apply it to any context of our lives, you know, I love the example when we talk about emotional, emotional intelligence of normalizing it in our homes. So if I come home from work and I have had a horrible day, I can say to my kids, I'm really upset. It was a difficult day. I'm sure you can tell by my face, by I need to do, and then I know what works for me. Maybe I can go for a 10 minute walk or I'm going to go listen to music or I'm, I'm just going to say, I got to go, I got to go take a bath or have a seat in the backyard. And then when you come back, you can say, oh, that really helped. Okay. I'm calmer now. And if you want to share a little bit about what happened, you did, but you've modeled that you feel a big emotion, which is great because we all feel them, but what you did to take control of it for yourself. And if our five-year-olds can do that, and they can, I've seen it. I've seen it in kindergarten classrooms. Trust me, my niece and I are out and about. She's my um, my partner in crime. She's a social worker. We're modeling. We're teaching parents. We're teaching kids, and they can do it. We have to learn it ourselves. So when I when we talk about the proactive piece, imagine if every single person in a school had four strategies or tools that worked for them. That's four things we can all pull of our toolbox. If you're a teacher. And you know, because you're doing mindfulness activities every single day in your classrooms, these things work for these five kids. These things work for three, these kids, you know, it works. When you start to see those triggers, you know what to use with that child and say, ah, I, I know that visualization works for you to want to take one of these and, and, uh, and, and take some time and go and do that. Do you want to take a walk and come back, take something to the office and come back? Cause I know giving yourself a break helps. Wow. It is just a, such a powerful concept that is real and possible. And there are countries in the world already, Mark, that have this embedded in their curriculum. China and India are two that I know of right now. The biggest thing I think from that is the one is actually just acknowledging that you are feeling what you're feeling and yes. it shouldn't be different. 
I mean, that's usually the big thing, especially in school. You have to be quiet. You have to do this. You have to do that. It has to look like this at this particular time, <laughs> which is great, except not everyone is like that at that particular time. And so understanding that even if there's nothing you can do about it in that moment, you've noticed that's where you are, that changes the whole dynamic of everything about you anyway. And like you say, from a young age all the way through, it's probably harder as you get through to the adult adult sort of time because you've been doing it not like that for so many years. You get into the, mm -hmm. the habit of just doing what you do. But just noticing that it's okay. I feel angry. Well, that's okay. <laughs> then, then like you say, then what can you do? What can we do to support you for that to be the case? I feel sad. That's okay. You know, I feel anxious about this. Well, that's okay. And it's perfectly natural because of all this, this, and this. You know, not this is how school is as, as the school example, you know. You shouldn't be anxious. Yeah. In fact, you've got to take, you know, 15 exams in the next two weeks and you're not really prepared and you're not able to sleep and blah, blah, all that. You're going to be like that. And absolutely, we wish it wasn't like that and we could have a whole system which was different and we'd set the environment up. But it is. And so and at some stage, there's going to be something else. You know, you're going to go through something in your life which is going to be difficult. It's not all going to be sunshine and rainbows. And that's just life. And it's OK. And at that point, everything you can sort of, you can feel everyone take a breath and go, "All oh, right," because I'm not failing all the time. No, you're just living life all the time, and then you can take your best step forward to help yourself in the best possible way. And then everything then becomes easier because it's all a positive step. You know, I am feeling like this, but I can now feel like this. Great. I want to learn this, but I can't because I don't have the skills or I need support to help me. I've got it from here. And then all of a sudden you feel like you're on a positive directory and then, and then life becomes a much nicer place to live. And I think, and then of course the net result of that is the anxiety lowers. Everyone feels like yes. they're supporting each other and that becomes a positive self-fulfilling prophecy, which is, yeah, like I say, when that sort of ship turns, then you're going to be in a different place. And we bring in the empathy part, right? So if I'm more aware of my emotions and I'm talking openly in my own home or in my own classroom about feelings, you know, we're teaching, recognizing, like when we go into kindergarten classes, it's in grade two, three, four classes, I actually turn my back and then I flip around and say, guess how I'm feeling? And I do the, you know, if I'm feeling, and they're great at guessing it. And then they model it themselves. But if they can recognize when one of their classmates is feeling stressed or anxious, then they can also help. And it becomes this community of people working together. The biggest challenge I've heard from, you know, people that I talk to and guests that I've had on my podcast too, is uh, me, my generation, two, three generations after me, we never talked about it. So what you said earlier about, you know, we've learned, we've been this way for 30, 40, 50 years. And now, oh, I gotta start talking about my feelings. There's a lot of people that are just not there. They don't want to do it. It's baby, baby steps. And if you're not doing that in your home, you're also modeling that for your kids. So if they never see you upset, and they're upset. Are they going to? Are they going to share that with you? <sighs> yeah, I don't want my parents to see that I'm upset because uh, uh, they're never upset. They they know how to figure it out. I need to figure it out myself too, and that's not healthy. It's just not healthy. Yeah, absolutely. So, with that in mind, take us into into the books that you've you've co-written because I'm I'm really interested about. You know, we could talk about these things till the cows come home. And like you say, you've demonstrated how you've done it in your work environment, but then you've also you're changing people's lives by doing it in a different way. So tell us about that. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. So um, my daughter had gone through that really difficult time. And the last five years of my job, uh, the levels of kids with anxiety to the point where it was, you know, it was affecting them coming to school and being successful was growing. And we responded. 
We put child youth workers in schools. We train people to be the, you know, the go-to people. We put extra supports and services in school. We put emotional vocabulary in kindergarten. We responded. When I started to see um, symptoms with my daughter, we responded. But I was out for a walk one day and she's in Indonesia actually tutoring right now, doing fabulously well because she figured things out. I just had one of those aha moments that we occasionally do and it was about what we have it backwards. We have it backwards. And my niece um, was just finishing her master of social work. So I called her on the phone and I said, Amber, I want to write a children's book series and I want to teach kids at the beginning. I need you. I need your clinical experience. And she was like, oh, wow. Okay, we're in. (laughs) And it's two years now. Um, and we just, we've just had such fun. It's really incredible because she's got the clinician mind. I've got the educator mind. I have learned so much from her. So we created this fictitious planet called Tezra and we, all these characters that are not identical, they could be it, they, she, whatever alien, give it any name you want. So any kid can relate to it and they all glow in the color they're feeling because the kids haven't learned how to control their emotions yet. So we start by teaching emotional vocabulary. Everybody, if you're glowing green, that means you're feeling confident and self-aware and happy and, you know, more than one emotional vocabulary word because we have over 200 now. (laughs) If you can believe that, it's not just happy, sad, glad, mad anymore. Anyway, and then an adult figure kind of hovers on in because they don't walk, they hover on Tezra and teaches a strategy for whatever situation that child has just faced. And the book, the first book is called I Have Choices. And of course, I said this to my kids growing up. I said this to myself, well, you have a choice. You have a choice. Figure it out. You have a choice. But there's actually a step-by-step strategy to teach kids. When you when you come into a situation, you go, oh, this makes me feel in whatever way. We typically think we have this choice or this choice. I have to do it or I don't have to do it. If I have to do it, then oh, if I don't have to do it, then these are the reap. No, there's so many other choices if we can just take a step back and identify what they are. Then we teach the children to do that we, through this step-by-step thing. And in the end of the book, Zerko, who's the main character in this one, becomes confident and happy again and makes a decision because they saw all the choices that were there. So every book teaches a different evidence-based strategy. And all the characters are named after crystals. That was Amber's idea. I think is brilliant. Every crystal, if you look at the definition of crystals, have positive um, attributes, healing, motivation, self-awareness. It's awesome. So we've got the fifth book. I just picked up the print proof yesterday. It's being printed tomorrow. The five book series is going to be out. Uh, we're going to be at the American Library Association conference in uh, Chicago in three weeks. Um, we're putting it out there in any way, shape, or form that we can. I've donated it to the Legacy Library for Lady J.B. Owen over in Indonesia. These books are making a difference. We have them available in French. We are talking about translation um, to various languages, especially in my area. Spanish and Arabic will be fantastic. We've got to get to that point, right, as a business where we can make that happen. But what makes that more powerful with our books, even so, is we're going out into community schools and speaking with parents and guardians and talking about emotional well-being. We were just in one last night and the conversations afterwards were they just left with so many different things to think about which is very powerful because the first step about making change is thinking about what I can do and then maybe researching further or leaving there and going, I'm doing this now. It's pretty awesome. And we're offering those virtually now, even though school year is coming to an end, the fall sticking, um, starting up, we're going to, we're going to start to book them in for the fall. Now we're really thrilled. The, The feedback's been fabulous. It's just been such a pleasure. And we scooped up an illustrator. You'll appreciate this as an, well, as a music, but you know, the arts, 
She was graduating from secondary school here in the local area. Her name is Elisa Batten, and she's the illustrator of our books. We print locally, um, try to support local wherever we can. But we do have uh, a whole shipping thing in place to to ship worldwide as well. So amazing, and I just yeah. I just love that next step. You know, beyond the conversation, what can we do? Like saying, sometimes it just comes out of the blue, and it's an aha moment, and these things go into place. Sometimes they're slow burn, and they make it. But it's doing something, isn't it? Because it's so easy to sit here and say it's bad or it doesn't quite work or it could be like this, but it's not. But I think in each of those sort of incremental steps of kind of this wasn't going to work, but we managed to do this or we helped this person because of this. And I, it sounds from what we've spoken about today, it's lots of those incremental things that are in place that kind of it builds the trust and the understanding. And then you have a body of people who kind of see and feel the benefits. And then from there, whatever that project happens to be, whether it's a book, whether it, like I say, it's bringing a team of people together to to change the way that you're actually implementing something it's it's got that kind of momentum which you can you can kind of build on and uh, yeah I love it I think it's absolutely fantastic um, and I'm curious when people are in education is there something about your education experience or a teacher that had an impact but more importantly probably how that then has kind of helped you create the education world that you sort of encompassed as a grown up oh you know I thought about this one and I had like four. Yeah, my I would say, you know, one of the most I, I I journaled right from oh probably the middle of elementary school. My dad was a musician, traveling around from the time I was grade four. Uh, more and more absence, I became parentified. What's the word? Parentification. I became, I was the oldest of four, helping my mom. And anyway, I um, my grade seven teacher. Um, no, she wasn't a teacher. She was a teacher librarian. I'm so embarrassed to say that I do not recall her name. She had a writing competition. And I wanted to tell the world. Because back then, you, you know, uh, divorced parents, separated parents, parents who weren't there. It wasn't really common. People were still together. So I wrote a book called My Family House. And I have to laugh because I won first, second, and third prize. Because I don't think anybody else entered. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. But, I mean, she was so influential for me, learning that journaling was my way of helping myself be be well. I loved writing things down. Nobody needs to read them. Now I can shred them. I can, you know, I type them away, delete, shred, whatever. Um, for, for to me, that was a that was a valuable piece because I didn't feel like I fit in. Right? I was the kid whose dad was never around. I was the kid, you know, who rented the house who. You know, my mom would say, you know, making, stealing from Peter to pay Paul. And I just felt like I didn't fit in. And she just gave me a way. She just gave me a way to say, hey, this is me and I'm, it's okay. And, and, and to move out of that embarrassment mode, you know, when you're 12 and 13 years old that we so often get stuck in. I don't know. And I, and I took that with me as a teacher, right? Everybody comes from a different place. There isn't one model, one you know, when we talk about families today, wow, let's be, let's be um, responsive and welcoming to what a family looks like today and not judgmental, right? So I guess when I, I thought about that question, I thought, what, what brought me to the, and loving special education and, and doing my very best as an educator to always try to say, thinking outside of the box, well, what's going to work? What's going to work for this kid who's, who has autism and is nonverbal and is violent? All right, what are we going to do about this? Yeah. I think that was, I think that's what, a big part of it. Yeah, I think I think that being seen and also feeling like, say, your voice is actually important enough to be heard and to be able to put it 
put it into place, whatever that happens to be. And it's um, and like I say, none of this that we're talking about is how to do any given subject better. <laughs> like it all starts much True. before that, and it's all about how you learn with people. And if you think back, you know, generations pre-traditional school, all of that, it was all about relationships, learning whatever skill you need in inverted commas in order to live your life you know whether that's making something you know growing something just being able to survive you know that's what we're doing it's about relationships and learning and studying in a way that's going to help us and I, and I love hearing the way that like I say you bring that in I think it becomes very apparent from what you said in terms of your career and the way you've lived your life as a as an educator that would have made a big impact you can kind of see the sort of the correlation between the, the two things mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to go back to my hometown and find out her name <laughs> and maybe try to find a way to get her a card or, or even meet up and treat her to coffee or lunch. Yeah. I really do. I need to do that. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Um, <laughs> what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Or indeed, is there a, a piece of advice you might give a, a younger Lynn now looking back? That's fascinating. Uh, you know, I thought about this one too. And it's, this is going to, it's going to, I want to start in a very positive way. My mom's been gone 20 years. She passed away from lung cancer actually uh, 20 years ago. Um, and you know, I explained a little bit about my dad being on the road and not really there. And she had to step in really as a single mom of four kids, you know, for a very, very large part of her life. She was strong. She was proud. She was resilient. I said, you know, she would steal from Peter to pay Paul every single month. In the wintertime, we had to close off the upstairs because we couldn't afford to heat it. You know, and she was always that got to do it. Got to do it for my family. My family was number one. It was everything to her, right? I was the oldest was that on the road, as I said, but but mom kept everything inside. She didn't talk to us about it. And I understand, I realize those of you that of that generation, you believe you're protecting your children by not talking about it. They don't want, you don't want them to feel your worry, your fear. My, my goodness, she was, she was terminal and still would not talk to us about how she was feeling. She would just say, oh, just get me a new body and, you know, crack a joke at the time. And I learned from that because I have regrets that I wasn't able to have those conversations with her. I have regrets. I feel like I should have been able to support her as I grew older, which I realize that's my, that's my torch to bear, I guess is the word. But now I talk to my kids uh, and this didn't start. I had to learn myself why I wasn't doing this. And I go back to my childhood now to understand why I behave the way I do, why my relationships are the way they were. But I do talk to my kids now. It's an entirely different light. I don't keep things bottled up. I do believe the reason she got ill, our minds, our bodies, our souls are all connected is because she kept a lot of that inside for so, 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 so long. I'm not suggesting she didn't have a girlfriend or two to talk to, but keeping things bottled up, what I've learned from my mom is it's unhealthy to do that. I wish I've, I've seen, I see it differently. I absolutely respect her. I love her to death. She's my model. She's my mentor. I miss, I talk to her every single day. But she's taught me to not do it that way. Uh, when I had my brain tumor, we pulled the kids in. It was tough. It, oh my God. It was one of the most difficult things I ever had to do. They were 14, 15, no, 15. My daughter's 16th birthday was three days before my surgery. And my oldest was 19 at the time. And um, of course, we said it in a way where we weren't trying to create fear. But facts are facts, right? Facts are facts. And I'll tell you, that's when journaling kicked in because I could put it all on paper and not have to tell them everything. But, I, you know, being open with them and understanding how they were feeling, especially my daughter who was already an anxious daughter. And now she's terrified for her mother's life, you know. So I, I kind of went on a tangent there. But my, my advice has been just because I saw how much she struggled that, you know, we don't have to struggle alone. We need to talk. We need to find people. We need to open up and we need to be human. 
Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for for sharing that. I mean, that is it's quite a story, but I, I think one of the the really important things is is that you never know what it is that's going to help somebody else. Um, and like you say, the shielding them is it seems like a good idea. And and like you say, there's a time and a place, and there's also an appropriateness depending on the people that are around you. That that, that the that, age, that, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean that that's a, I think that's important. But I think also. I think one of the things I learned very much was the fact that you don't know, you shouldn't worry about what you should or shouldn't say. You should just say what you feel at the time. Because as soon mm-hmm. as you do that, you'll say the right thing. And you don't know what that is. And you don't know what it is for you, but you also don't know what that is for the person you're talking to. And and I think if you're open in that way and you feel like life is a journey in that sense, it can only be a positive thing. And doing it and allowing it just to be is is a really 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 key thing and it's really hard to explain i think to some people but it kind of takes the fear factor out because it kind of takes away from it has to look like this or look like that it's just you're we're sharing this experience good bad or indifferent and and we're going to take from it what we need to in order to take that next step and and that means opening up our vulnerability which is so tough for some people for someone who's so proud right to say I'm vulnerable and let people in, huge step for some people. It's got to be a first baby step to start. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And like you said, and like, I think it comes around to like you said before about the empathy, you know, and that comes from for yourself as well. You know, if you've never done it for generations and, and multiple decades, then it's going to be tough. Yeah. So that's okay. And <laughs> do what yeah, you can do sure today, is. even if it's only acknowledging that you'd like to, but you can't. At least you know it's there, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and and then you take those baby steps from there. Yeah, really, really key. <laughs> um, is there a resource you'd like to share? And this can be anything, personal or professional, but video, podcast, film, book, something that's had an impact that you think people would benefit from. Oh, this is a little bit odd, but I I gotta tell you that the movie Ben is back from two thousand and eighteen with Julia Roberts. Have Have you seen it, Mark? I haven't. No. Okay. Well, uh, I guess maybe at that time I we were in a real, the really difficult part with our with our daughter and our whole family, and so Julia Roberts plays um, the mother of a 19 year old who's become an addict, and that, this is this is becoming all too common these days because people are are moving to addictions. This was a drug ad, drug addiction. There's addictions in all different ways because people aren't coping, so they're grabbing onto something externally to get through. But, I mean, she represented, so Ben comes home on Christmas Eve, and he's been gone for a while, and the family's been doing okay. She embraces him. She allows him back in the house. She's scared to death about what's going to happen. Relieved, welcoming, wary, overwhelmed, and the whole movie goes through. He's not home. He doesn't come home. She's terrified. What is she going to do? She goes out searching for him. I don't want to give away the premise, but I was in that place. And the movie takes you to an end place where she actually takes control of herself and comes to the most challenging difficulty, the most challenging decision or revelation revelation that a parent can come to is, I cannot save them. They have to find a way to save themselves. That doesn't mean that we're not there. That doesn't mean that we're not part of their safety plan. But that whole movie, I related it to in, in such a way because I, I was literally walking beside her. Totally different with, you know, debilitating anxiety, but it's still, you just, you just want to pick them up and save them and, and, and you can't. They have to find a way themselves. So that movie was very powerful for me. I love it. And I think, I think t- tying it together with 
of what we talked about earlier in the show as well because yeah. you can't do it and it absolutely is their decision and I've, I've been there I've experienced that and it's something which is really hard to to put into words if you haven't been down that down that road but I think what it does is the fact that you know that at that point the more skills people have earlier on means they either don't get to that point or when they do struggle because you know life can be tricky with the best will in the world and the best amount of education and circumstances and experience you have something that gives you an inkling of where you're going to get that from because the point the point where you really can't help is when you just don't know and you've got so far into that hole whatever that happens to be whether it's illness or or whatever the situation happens to be that you don't know where that is and that's that's really difficult for everyone involved because then that's when you need a lot of the external help just to kind of get you through whatever stage that is to then help you heal wherever that happens to come and so it's where it's why i love the book idea it's why i love all those things that having all those things in place just means that you're going to help so many people who will never need they'll get the understanding and and the the positivity of it without having to get to that point that I don't think you need to get to in order to still have that fulfilled, enlightened life, as it were, because, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. I thank you. You just shared your vulnerability and that experience yourself. And thanks for, I, I should have said that at the end, because part of what I do and part of me speaking on podcasts like yours today is to say, if I only knew then what I know now, and we know so much more now, my daughter was a volatile child, right? What do you do? You go in and you calm and you calm. And back in that day, we did timeouts for Pete's sakes, okay? Because the whole family was stressed, calm it down. But now, instead of doing a timeout, I might have said, okay, let's do some breathing. Let's do some breathing with me. Let's do some breathing. And then there's an educational piece afterwards, right? Um, and she had illness, which is part of the reason for her becoming fearful, right? Be hospitalizations and all those kinds of things. And we now know that childhood, that's childhood trauma that people can carry with them for lives, for their lives. So being aware that something that just happened, it might be a car accident. It might be a neighbor down the street, something happened to. It might be something that you don't think has an effect on your child. But you can use things like, you mentioned it earlier, play therapy, music therapy, um, all of these kinds of things for little people to help them through those those traumatic times at that time rather than waiting for symptoms yeah absolutely. <laughs> i could absolutely. go we could talk for hours Mark. yeah absolutely absolutely <laughs> um so just just to round up um fire as an acronym is incredibly important here as part of education on fire and by that we always mean feedback inspiration resilience and empowerment and i think we've probably covered all of these over the course of our conversation anyway but what what is it that kind of speaks to you when you hear that Oh, I had so many. I, I had so, but I'm going to land on this one. Uh, she's a good friend of mine now, Vicki Houston. So just imagine this, Mark. Um, I'm superintendent of education. And in our board, we had a supervising principal of special education, right? Uh, like someone who worked directly. And, you know, the responsibilities were kind of shared, but that person reported to me. And I had just hired Vicki as the supervising principal of special education. That was in June. She was closing a secondary school. She was moving into the role. I was diagnosed with my brain tumor on July 13th. I was having my craniotomy in August and Vicky tells the story beautifully, but she got called into the board office by the director and she thought, oh, I guess I've already lost the job. <laughs> and actually she was being tapped on the shoulder and said, will you step in and be the superintendent? She'd never been 
working at the board office and graciously stepped into this role with little transition. You know, if you're going to, you, you, when people transition, you transition, you turn over a portfolio. I think I had a one hour conversation with her. She did that role for a year. And, but most importantly, when I came back on a graduated return, we, we job shared. So just imagine if you're my friend, Vicki, and this person who now has an acquired brain injury, who has short-term, long-term memory issues, sometimes muddles up her words and can't quite communicate clearly. I'm better now than I was 10 years ago when this happened. She was gracious. She was kind. She was protective. Um, such a beautiful partner to go through the next five months with in, in you, you know, respectful of the fact that I had to learn the new me. And to me, that's what, that's what fire is all about. That's that. You know, you're going to step up, be part of a team, still be protective, still make sure the system isn't affected in a detrimental way. Lynn, are you, I don't, yeah, man, that's not, that's probably not a meeting you want to have alone. I, you know, <laughs> you know those kinds of things, but yeah, she, she's yeah. the one I landed on. Wonderful, wonderful lady. Well, there you are. And I think, I think that kind of sums it up beautifully. The right thing at the right time, the right person at the right time, the world taking care of itself when you allow it to be. And like you say, I think all those things that you shared so beautifully with us kind of just give you faith that that's the case. And I think each time you need to think of something, that's the thing to think about. And then from there on in, allow it, allow it to be what it is and, and, and take that momentum going forward. So Lynn, well, thank you so much for sharing everything that you shared today. I really appreciate it. And um, I think the world's a greater place when we have people like you in it, uh, supporting our young young people and adults in terms of being able to give them the skills, the understanding, but allowing them to be themselves in their own personal way. And that's all we can really do. And then show, show them the way forward to, to be the guarding light that they can be for the next person. Oh, beautiful closing. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.